My guest this week is the epitome of a tireless work ethic. The son of immigrants, he started his career on the ground floor, literally, at a department store. But he hit the wall a lot. So much that at one point, his boss told him he would never amount to anything. But when you don't take no for an answer, and you don't give up, well, things might change. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is John Dempsey, beauty brand mogul and executive group president at Estee Lauder Companies. John and I discuss what he learned from working retail jobs for a decade, how embracing hip-hop's glamour built MAC Cosmetics, how K-pop and Tom Ford are getting men to wear makeup, and why hair and makeup are at the core of how people express themselves and how culture is formed. So, John, you're on the pod. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. Well, I mean, because you're a bit of a mystery to me in the sense that so many people that I've talked to have mentioned you as not just a trendsetter, not just um, a brand builder, but as someone who has their finger on the pulse and is leading everyone, but is sitting on the sidelines. And I say that with confidence. No, 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 no. It's... um... I hear that a lot, actually. The people always find it very hard to characterize who I am or what I'm about. Yeah. People like to say that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a suit to all creatives and a creative to all suits. Okay. And um, I guess my success in my, my career has been my ability to move under different layers of the culture or society and sort of a profound understanding of what the real world is like right? and um, the lofty world and what people want to know or be part of and at the same time knowing what it was to not be part of anything. So, yeah. So it's, you know, I, I think being grounded from the beginning is um, sort of how it starts. Well, because you're you're a Midwest guy, right? I'm a Cleveland, Ohio guy. Grew up in the Mistake on the Lake, so I um, so there I'm a go. I'm a product of um, post-war, aspirational, upperly mobile Jewish parents, growing up in a preppy environment. Um, you know, basically, um, you know, sort of the post-war, yeah, post-war suburban. Yeah. Track. So it's um listen, I was lucky I you know, I I know I was more fortunate than most and I had exposure to things at an early age because my parents were very unique in what they exposed me to and instilled in me. Interesting. So um you know, to, to put things in perspective, I um I mean Growing up in Shaker Heights and going to a prep school and okay. all those sort of where people wore like duck pants and blazers and mm-hmm. Oxford shirts and but somehow at twelve years old I talked my parents into sending me to Japan for a month. Wait, hold on. So I you know, so I I at a very early age had an idea that I needed to get out of Dodge. I didn't know where I was going. Well, but Japan's I, pretty far. No, so I went. I went to Japan, okay, f- and um, for Expo seventy, actually. So it was it was it was way 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 back. Okay, and then I 
managed to get my parents to send me to Monte Carlo to go to tennis camp. So somehow from Shaker Heights, I was in Monte Carlo meeting sort of Euro people and out of control New York kids, which are very much out of the experience level of anybody else that I grew up with. Or So I, at a very young age, yeah. found a way to put myself in places that, I don't know if I had any business even being there, but somehow found a way to get there. So yeah. d- just let me sidebar for a second. Are you, are you by yourself? By myself. In, in Japan, in Monte Carlo? Oh, no, 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 no. I, in, my, in, in Japan, I went with a school out of Philadelphia. So it okay. was a, no, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have a Visa card or a MasterCard and okay. <laughs> go off to Japan at 12 years old and you know, start you know, going up you know, Mount Fuji or anything. Right. So, like, no, so I, it, it, there were organized programs, but I, but, Interesting. but I always had sort of an idea mm-hmm. that whatever it was that I was going to do, that the path was going to be a little bit different. And, right. um, and you know, my parents had sort of an interesting backstory because my, my dad was the son of immigrants mm-hmm. you who know, grew up with not a lot of money and he was one of four children and he was you know, sort of the steel service business that was part of the ecosystem of automotive and yeah, construction. Yeah, I mean, big part of Cleveland. A big part Ohio. of Cleveland and those things. And my mother um, had very unconventional parents and her father was partners in a knitting mill company here in Jamestown, New York. And wow. when I was a kid, my grandfather was a supplier of record to Rudy Gernreit. So oh, my Lord. mother was walking around the house, not in a topless bikini, but in Rudy Gernreit hot pants with go-go boots. And so, you know, it was a very different sort of upbringing for anybody in, in Cleveland, New York, yeah. or anywhere. And because my, my grandfather, who was quite successful, um, spent a lot of time in California from the age of one years old, every summer of my entire life, I was at the Beverly Hills Hotel. So okay. I learned how to swim okay. by the infamous Sven the Pool Man. So I, I, I began at a very early age, sort of grounded in the Midwest, yet exposed to Hollywood, New York. My parents had an apartment in New York City when I was a teenager. Um, so my, 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 my mother took my sister and myself to inappropriate nightclubs at 13 and 14 and 15 years old. Okay. <laughs> My grandparents used to take me to speakeasies and night nightclub acts in Fort Lauderdale and Miami, you know, at six, seven, and eight. So, you know, at six years old, I asked to go see Ike and Tina Turner. So, <laughs> so I, in retrospect, how the hell did I even know that I even wanted to go see Ike and Tina Turner? Yeah. But yeah. I did. And so, I did. So what age was it that you realized that maybe your upbringing is a little bit different than the standard sort of child at that time? You know, I, I never really thought about it. Yeah. I always assumed that everybody, you know, I never, I never thought of myself being different or unique 
or special or privileged or handicapped or I don't know. I just um, I just always thought of myself as being a typical complicated Jewish kid from the suburbs, right? And it's I never really I never really thought about it. Yeah, and um, it's only as you get older in life and you start to reflect on what you've done and where you've gone and what defines you that if you really knew what you were getting yourself into in the early years, you may never have done it. So I was incredibly naive mm-hmm. and bold and didn't really know what the world had up against for me. Yeah. As I was, you know, so I, so I wouldn't say I was fearless because I, I've always had a healthy dose of paranoia or, you know, you know, my own stuff, but sure. I, but I, but I really didn't really understand how the world worked. And, you know, I, and growing up as a kid in the Midwest, I used to find my escape, you know, listening to the radio. Yeah. And in those years, you know, Cleveland was the heart of rock and roll. Oh, Actually, yeah. the first rock and roll station was WMMS. The word rock and roll was invented in Cleveland. And actually, a lot of the glam rock acts of the 70s, like Lou Reed or David Bowie, actually made their U.S. debuts at the Argyle, which was a theater in Cleveland. Oh, yes. So, some, so, 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 some, so, for, so for some strange reason, you know, being in Cleveland, you know, all of us had this sort of exposure to this sort of underground rock and roll. And I was always infatuated and charmed by black culture. And okay. being in Cleveland, you used to be able to pick up the airwaves, way before the internet, of CKLW, which was the Motown sound. So I remember sitting in my room with my transistor radio, listening to the Supremes or listening to, you know, the Temptations or listening to the OJs or listening to the sound yeah. that was coming. And, and they weren't playing it in Cleveland yet. It was coming from the Detroit sound or yeah. the Motown sound. So I, um, and I read magazines. I was a total media junkie. And in those years, I used to read, you know, The Village Voice or Interview, or I used to, you know, try to get European magazines to look at things. And I spoke French, so I'd read Perry Match. So I always was, you know, you know, just trying to learn about or see things that weren't part of my world. Yeah. I mean, if I had grown up in today's world, I wouldn't have to get out of the house. I'd just click on it. So it's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know. But, it's, uh, <laughs> but that's really interesting. And I mean, we'll skip ahead quite a bit here because, um, I mean, to, to go through your sort of like list of accomplishments from, you know, what you've built and created at Estee Lauder is, would basically take up the rest of the, the show. But I mean, when is it that you start to, to move a little bit more towards this industry? Well, my move to the industry began, I put it into sort of buckets. Mm-hmm. Um, went to Stanford University, went to NYU Business School, had sort of a plan, thought, you know, my, I had a cousin, actually, my, my grandmother's first cousin mm-hmm. was the guy who invented Jovan Musk Oil, which was the 1970s sex pheromone fragrance and actually it was like the number one selling fragrance in america so i was always interested that you know cousin bernie had made 
this success in the fragrance business. So I had this first dream that maybe I should be in TV or advertising or the movie business. Yeah. But I was sort of interested by, by the beauty business. And um, when I graduated school, it was in the early 80s with mm-hmm. big, big recession, no jobs. And um, I tried actually to get a job at ABC, NBC, Paramount, Gulf and Western, you, you name it, even here at Estee Lauder. And um, couldn't get a job. You know, because I didn't know anybody. I came to New York. Yeah. Actually, the, my number one gift that I always point out, which I, when I graduated from Stanford, I went home to Cleveland and my mother said, you're leaving. I said, well, <laughs> what do you mean I'm leaving? She goes, you're not staying here. Oh, there's, no future, there's no future for you here. You're not going to reach your potential here. You've got to go to New York. And literally... I was lucky that my parents sort of helped me along the way in the beginning, but I came to New York and I had to get a job. Yeah. And I ended up, you know, in retail for the first 10 years of my life. Went through the executive training program at Macy's, worked for Rosemary Bravo, who hired me. Actually, I was nearly fired from my first job. Why was that? Because I was, the, no one, the woman who I worked directly for told me I was never going to amount to anything. How did that and make I, you feel? I felt like, like lousy, actually. You know, here I came, like thinking I was such an achiever and yeah. having seen everything and done everything. And um, having my first dose of, um, you know, cold water thrown on me, coming to New York and all of a sudden having no network, no friends, no connections, no understanding. And um, I, I had to get humble real fast. And yeah. I ended up actually, when Macy's, I started off in the beauty department and was actually placed in the Sergio Valente jeans department in the Bronx okay. during the launch year of Flashdance and listening to Maniac for Your Love as I was chaining up the Sergio Valente jeans. <laughs> and um, I was totally miserable and ended up leaving there and went on to a career at Bloomingdale's and Saks Fifth Avenue and various buying roles actually in the fragrance business and ended up working for the Benetton family for a short-lived sort of oh, beauty wow. venture and yeah. new, new Luciano Benetton. So in those, those 10 years of the beginning of my career, um, I had a lot of jobs. I was the guy who never could hold a job, always doing something different, but met a lot of people and got a lot of experience. And I, I always tell people that actually thought that probably those experiences probably formed more of my success in business and life than had everything ended up the way that I originally planned it. Yeah. I mean, there's and, a work ethic that, that, that gets instilled in you when one, you come to New York and basically you realize that you're not who you think you are in your head, but and, then also just the tireless work over and over again. And you know, I was working in retail. Yeah. I worked seven days a week during the holiday period, had to oh. be on the floor. And how old are you I'm, at this time? I'm 23 years old. Okay. And yeah. for 10 years, I'm the underperformer versus all my peers and friends who went to work for E.F. Hutton or Lehman Brothers or who, you know, had these hot shit right. jobs. And here I'm the guy earning barely anything, you know, literally working job by job on the ground and working up. And I came to work here at the Estee Lauder companies um, 29 years ago. And it wasn't until I was 40 years old 
Okay. When I got the opportunity to run Mac Cosmetics, that I even began to even be associated with a personal success. So people always talk about, you know, I was not an overnight sensation. It didn't, yeah. it didn't happen overnight. And I've always taken what life sort of has dealt me and tried to make the most of it. And when I took the Mac job, and this is like in 1998, yeah. um, we had bought the business in 1995. And it was a business that was in trouble. And we took control of the business. And one of the founders had passed away. And Leonard Lauder, at the time, had said to me, um, he actually had offered me another job. And I told him I wasn't going to take it because I didn't think it was successful. And I'd been given a couple other job opportunities, which I turned down from some illustrious European-based sort of fashion designer sure. beauty companies. And he said, what about Mac? And I said, I'll do it. I'll take it. And literally... What made you want to take it? I knew that there was something special about it, but I had no idea what a fixer-upper it was. Right. And I had no idea what a sort of seminal moment it was in the culture. And at the time, Mac was this tiny indie makeup brand that was in Toronto, which wasn't really global. They had a little presence in fashion weeks in London and New York and had a a strong cred in the underground drag community and with some of the makeup artist community around the world. But it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily um, the world's most important makeup brand, which it, it's, it has become today. And, I, and in those years, it was a small business that was able to take a risk on me because it, Interesting wasn't, consi- you put it, that way. Because it wasn't considered at the time to be anything that it became. So the company at the time viewed this as a small niche business with a lot of potential. But it wasn't viewed as a big job with a big responsibility and a big opportunity to make it sort of a defining moment. And because I was able to do that, I basically was able to, from the ground floor, recast the business and build the equity of what the brand was about from the very beginning. And I learned everything. And I, I had sort of a passion for music and a passion for fashion and a mm-hmm. passion for travel and a passion for design, creativity, and product that I never could able do anything with because I always was working in a sort of a business role. Right. And I right. was able to basically explore what it was that I could push the boundaries of and to make successful. And I established and forged relationships and got to know, you know, Alexander McQueen or, you know, so every major fashion designer in London, in Paris, in Milan, in New York. I made back the backstage resource for every single designer. I So let me just like pause on that for a moment. What is it that that you were able to do to make that happen. Because the, the interesting thing, and I mean, obviously your, your accomplishments are incredible, but the, the nitty gritty of making that, like the, the phone calls, the meetings, I mean, were you just emailing people? Or no, 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 no. I've always, I've always been talent. I've always worked with a talented crew. Yeah. So I've always been able to be successful because I've never felt insecure mm-hmm. not to have people that know things better than I do 
or people who have access. And um, authentically, I asked. Yeah. And quite honestly, nobody had ever asked before. I mean, it really was, I was really, and this brand was really one of the first movers to try to take backstage beauty, fashion, runway, professional artistry, and sort of pop culture. Because remember, this is all taking place against the MTV, VH1 yeah. sort of generation as well. And I used the brand platform as an access point for me to meet and engage the brand with major fashion talent. And interestingly enough, probably the history of the last quarter of a century of all the pop icons in our world. So one of the things that when I arrived at Mac, which was a super niche special thing was the yeah. brand actually had created this charity lipstick called Viva Glam that was done with RuPaul, who was the first spokesperson for the brand. And mm -hmm. it actually was the thing that made the brand famous and sort of a counterculture favorite around the world. Um, and when I arrived, um, and the brand when I arrived had been in business for 14 years. Okay. So it wasn't like the brand had not existed. Yeah. And when I arrived, um, RuPaul was still there. The second Viva Glam spokesperson was Katie Lang. So we had the boy is the girl and the girl is the boy. Right, right. And it was that moment that sort of I had the keys to the car and I had to sign up for something or to do something that was brand defining. And the brand defining moment for me was to embrace hip hop culture because I felt based on my growing up in a blended sort of listening to Motown, listening to Motown. Yeah. And interestingly enough, the founders of Mac actually were also business partners on a failed hair business with Gladys Knight from Gladys oh Knight God. and the Pips. Wow. So this sort of black cultural central centered core of everything was something that sort of informed me as well. And I think that a lot of children of immigrants or people who grow up in small places understand that subculture groups or minorities struggle and that when they become successful, it's somehow meaningful in the culture and society. Yeah. So I embraced hip hop and met Mary J. Blige, Little Kim, Puff Daddy. Yeah. And all of a sudden, 1999, I'm living in the center of white mink coats, bling bling, <laughs> okay. stretch limos, <laughs> bottles of champagne, and over the top fabulosity. Yeah. Some of which is not so PC in this day and age. But you know, literally, that all out, unadulterated, over the top glam spiration was sort of the first move. And over the course of over 20 years, yeah. I, I kept curating or bringing all these people on board. And we, I would sit around with this amazing creative director, James Gager. And I remember we would sit and say, someone said, you know, you should really meet Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga, you know, Lady Starlight, who works in the Mac store, does Lady Gaga's makeup. Yeah, and this is nobody right. Knows, yeah. So we signed Lady Gaga. 
before anybody signed Lady Gaga. And I remember seeing Rihanna performing in South Beach before anybody knew who Rihanna was. And I, and we said, well, we should do something with Rihanna. And Rihanna was with us before there even was a Fenty. And so, w- what is it that you saw in her that made you be like, that's the person? Because that's that's a really rare gift. It's the power of transformation. I think in the culture, people have the ability to shape the culture or to influence how and why people do things. Yeah. And I, my first signal on the hip hop thing was that I actually saw it when I was traveling in Asia. And I was actually surprised when I was, you know, because we always, I always had this sort of trick that I can't do anymore because the world doesn't work the same way anymore. When I used to go to a town, sure. I used to turn on MTV or VH1 or whatever the music TV channel was. I'd have a stack of international fashion magazines, gossip rag magazines. Okay. And I would ask a driver to take me to where the rich people lived, where the club kids lived, and where was the counterculture. And so I would understand the difference between posh and street right? and what was sort of happening. And people would always be surprised. Like I'd go to Taiwan and they say, well, how do you know about this singer or that singer? And I just, I immediately put myself into the context of where I was. And I started seeing sort of these cultural patterns in the way that people dressed or right. the way that people, um, you know, listen to music or the way people, dress, you know, went out to eat or how they put on their makeup or how they wore their hair. And it was sort of a unique point of view because most people in the beauty business don't have a merchant or a fashion or a pop culture angle. They tend to come from a more disciplined category shaping brand equity management background. But because of the fact that I had, I think, I still hope I have, but I've had historically a unique ability to see and sense and listen to things that happen in places around the world and bring them, bring them to the marketplace. So, you know, when I, you know, you know, in in, in 2000, you know, I was hanging out with Nigo in the bathing ape. So I saw the Japanese street culture the teriyaki thing boys. way before every... Yeah, the teriyaki boys. Yeah, I was, okay. I was in Nigo's lair with plushy animals and Vuitton <laughs> trunks. And you know, so these are the things that no one ever would even imagine. Like, you know, what do you do? Or what's your day like? Or what do you, what's your process? Yeah, it's a hell of a journal you got so, there. So I, so I was able to mold and shape the brand based on sort of these pop culture reference points. It's getting warm out there, and I bet you're wondering, how do I look good? I can't wear a sport coat, but I need that extra layer. Well, stay tuned, because Jay Muser and I are working on the shirt jacket to rule them all. It's linen, it's made in Italy, and it'll be here soon. This summer, we're going to be dripping in linen. Two lovely shades that will go with anything and everything in your wardrobe. Stay tuned to Jay Muser and the Blamo Instagram for more details. Summer has just begun. And um, over the years, um, the brand became very successful, very much imitated. Yeah. Um, and actually, I was given expanded responsibilities here at the Estee Lauder companies. Um, and I've had amazing 
support from the Lauder family, yeah, Leonard and and William, and from Fabrizio Freire, our CEO, and I've had a lot of people who have been supportive and given me a lot of opportunities. And I, you know, I guess my career, even though I work on you know thirty odd brands here in the company, thirty, yes, um, and I over I work with all the creative direction of all the brands within the company. I have two career defining moments. Okay. My career defining moments were after having been in this company for seven years on the Estee Lauder brand and working on Mac. And my second career defining moment was creating Tom Ford Beauty. Yeah, that was going to be that, my next and that, question. And yeah. that was once again, random, random situations coming together to line up towards something amazing. Well, how did um, you meet Tom? I met Tom originally because he interviewed me of trying to hire me to run YSL Beauty. Oh, geez. So when it was, so, so <laughs> okay. I actually, I had interviewed with him. Okay. Um, I didn't take the job. Um, so we, we had struck up a good, a good rapport. Yeah. And I remember that he and Richard used to use Mac brow gel. So I used to send Tom, you know, lots of Mac brow gel. And so we kept up sort of with each other that way. And when Tom left Gucci, um, through a mutual friend, um, Elizabeth Salzman, who lives in London, who's a stylist and worked for Vanity Fair, and actually through Erin Lauder herself, Oh wow! Said, um, you know, we we should do something with Tom, and this was before he started in business for himself. And actually, yeah, I was this, able this to was the first. It was the first, and I was able to engage him on a collaboration process with the Estee Lauder brand, and sort of redefining the original youth do positioning of the brand and Azure positioning of the brand. And as a quid pro quo. The agreement was to start off and take Tom Ford into the fragrance business. Mm. And at the time, um, there weren't a lot of believers. Um, Why is that? I don't, you know, it was, it was not to be, Tom had not established himself yeah. as a standalone brand. Um, it was hard to imagine how it was going to position itself in the world. And um, it's expensive to get a business started. And it was really Leonard Lauder mm. who personally gave his support and saw that identifying an American designer and taking that and creating something was a unique opportunity. And when I sat down with Tom from the very beginning, he was very ambitious. And his ambition was that I want to be the Chanel of my generation. And at the time, that was a very audacious, audacious thing to say. Yeah, extremely. And we sat down and mapped out concepts, and we started off with a fragrance called Black Orchid. And at the time, to establish provenance and credibility day one, we developed this concept called Private Blend. And the idea was Tuscan to... Tuscan leather. Tuscan leather. So the idea was to create <laughs> six fragrances that were supposed to be ambitious, unique, olfactively distinctive, yeah. and could be polarizing or loved, no judgment. And Tuscan leather was one of those fragrances and yeah. oud and 
who'd would, and we, the surprise was that we didn't put the money in the advertising. We put the money in the juice. And okay. we, which is not the, a very which common was, thing. Which was, it's more common today. Yeah. Back then, all the money was in advertising and in the sizzle, and nothing was put into the steak. Right. <laughs> and we put all the money into the product and saw around the world aspirational customers. So Tuscan leather or oud were nods to Russia and nods to Dubai and Saudi Arabia. So all the things that were developed were nods to aspirational populations that loved luxury and understood the subtle olfactive codes. So once again, growing up and Tom grew up in, you know, in Texas. Yeah. So he, he's always had such a vision and fundamental understanding of sort of the balance between the real world and the fashion world and sort of how to mind the culture. And Tom Ford is his, is totally his creation, but I've been super lucky that I was the business guy on the beauty side yeah. who's helped bring it to life. And it has proven itself to be, actually, it is the most successful designer beauty business born of the 21st century. It really is. And the candles, everything, I mean, everything. And also, you know, as we'll, we'll, we'll jump to, makeup for men. Yes. It's a very new thing, but I am, yes. <laughs> I am interested in trying it out. Well, yeah, so, so, yeah, once again, um, Tom's ambitious, and he, um, you know, so the idea of doing beauty products for men or was from his ideation from day one because he himself the Mac Brow Gel used the Mac Brow Gel yeah. or um, a competitor's not to be named tinted moisturizer, <laughs> sure. I, or I myself was using a competitive tinted moisturizer <laughs> or whatever the case may be. So, right, right. you know, being product junkies, um, you know, we knew what we liked, and we brought along a team of amazing people and product developers to do this. And yes, there is, um, we've often talked about the explosion of makeup for men. This has been discussed actually since the 1960s. Oh, wow. It goes back to actually Aramis and Bragi. Aramis was an Estee Lauder company's property, but the idea of men's grooming or makeup for men has long been discussed. It actually didn't become a commercial reality until the boy bands of Korea sort of emerged as sort of the pop culture icons uh, of the world. So boy beauty, the idea of men or young men using mascara or wearing color, um, not just to be rugged or to look better or professional, actually was born out of sort of K-pop in J-pop music. Oh, my God. So in Asia, and particularly in Korea and in China and Japan, the idea of men's makeup is not perceived with any sort of negative effect at all. It's actually considered to be totally, you know, fluid. And um, in my Mac years over the years, you know, a lot of men use Mac. Um, Yeah. 
it's always been sort of a staple for professional actors and athletes on camera. And it always was sort of a resource for glam rockers or punk rockers or people who use makeup as part of their sort of performance art. But the idea of beauty and male beauty and beauty products has sort of become a thing right now. Less of a thing in the Western world, but definitely yeah. a thing in Asia. What is it, though, that I think is really interesting that I feel like Tom Ford really made it more okay in a way for, for men to, to embrace makeup? Because Tom Ford um, has made fashion and fragrance in men okay. To, you can be masculine and still yeah. use these things. So, you know, Jay-Z sings about Tom Ford. Yeah. The hip-hop crew talks about Tom Ford. Just, you know, um, Justin Bieber, you know, could wear Tom Ford. Brad Pitt wears Tom Ford. So, you know, the, the, the Marlboro man of today wears Tom Ford. So Tom is sort of, I think he's shaped the culture, sort of the way that maybe Calvin Klein did right, right. in the 80s and the 90s in the years of obsession or eternity when you think of sort of his take on hedonism. I mean, Calvin Klein, and when you went to CK1, which was sort of the, probably the first sort of genderless yeah. sort of Their whole thing was for a man or for a woman. For yeah. a man or for a woman. And actually, Tom Ford Private Blend Fragrances never declare themselves as male or female. Oh, so our fragrances actually, um, with the exception of a couple of our men's fragrances um, in our signature lineup, none of them declare gender. And, and that it, was intentional? It was intentional because um, it's super interesting. I'll go on a lot of airline flights. Originally, Black Orchid was conceived as a women's fragrance. There yeah. are more male flight attendants wearing Black Orchid, and it never ceases to amaze me. Wherever I go over the world, I, you know, you smell the fragrance. I can smell it in the streets. I can, <laughs> and it's, um, so I think that Tom has made that idea sort of acceptable. Right. And, um, if, speaking of smelling in the streets to, to jump to my next thing, yeah. everywhere I walk in Brooklyn, every subway platform smells like Centel 33. Oh, I knew you were going to say that because, <laughs> Santel 33 um, is the scent of today's generation. It so it is. is. And it, it's, um, it's a brand that I've been working on, brought into the company, um, gosh, almost four or five years now. Actually, the next one you'll be smelling is another 13, oh. which is the um, one that we developed with Jefferson Hack that was sold in Colette as an exclusive. R.I.P. And when, Colette. And when, when Colette went away... Um, we took another 13 out. And so for a lot of the early adapters who were Santel 33, a lot of them sort of moved on to another 13. But the thing that I love about Lolabo is it is, it's kind of where Tom Ford is unadulterated luxury yeah. and glamour and opulence and femininity and masculinity. Lolabo is stripped away. It really is. It is the ultimate of the ethos of Williamsburg, <laughs> or as the French would say, Baba Cool, sort of artisanal, 
sort of the craft brewery yeah. of the fragrance business. And even so much so that we call the people who work for us the Labo Souls. And so the idea that you know the people who craft your fragrance for you or take you on your journey, actually, when you walk into a Labo store, they're not really selling you anything. There is no featured product. There is no visual intensification. You yeah. walk into a headspace. And the Labo, in a very unconventional way, has created a very conventional success story by being sort of the antithesis of everything else going around. And yeah. it's been um, phenomenally successful. It, on, on that note, I mean, as, and I'm curious about this, as so many brands, because what, what you were mentioning, the, the, the store experience of Lolabo, but I wonder, I mean, how many customers have been buying Centel 33 and never even been in a store? Like, how is it that, you, that you're able to start telling the story of something that relies so heavily on word of physical. Mouth. Yeah. Well, the, the, well, I guess word of one mouth. of the brilliant ideas of Eddie and Fabrice, the two founders of the company, and Deborah, who runs the company now, is that they did these amenity programs in the Ace Hotel, in all the Ace Hotels around the world, right. and with the Fairmont Hotels. So they were putting products in the amenity programs in people's rooms. So people would check into the Ace Hotel in LA or in New York, and they would maybe get a sample of Santel 33 or of Bergamot, and then they would want to know where to go to buy it. And they would actually, I mean, actually we placed a store in the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. So actually, yeah. they actually seeded the product where the customers were. And um, they seeded a lot of product in clubs. Okay. So all the young people that were going to clubs and living more of an underground sort of existence, right. their badge of honor was Centel 33. And it's, um, and it's something that's been around for over, I think, 10, 15 years. Really? But it didn't get seen to the general public only till about two or three years ago. So what's okay. super interesting about brands that begin via word of mouth, Yeah, I mean, in the uh, world of online or social media, the amplification of things that are undiscovered goes faster. Right. And we see now when the Labo does something now, the amplification of how it works in terms of people just talking about it happens much quicker than it used to happen. But they were very deliberate in being the, an the antithesis to fast fashion. They're all about slow retail. Right. The slower, the more chilled out, the more experiential, the better it is. And um, Interesting. Well, we're, we're starting to wrap up because I want to be conscious of yeah. your time. But, I mean, with all the stuff that you're doing, whenever you're like, okay, I need a day off, I need to unwind, what is it that you do? Well, I get this sort of crazy home life. Okay. I, um, I have 10 animals. So I live in a townhouse. Okay. Um, I have joint custody of an 11 and a half year old daughter. So uh, my daughter is, um, keeps me young. Right. So people wonder, well, how do I know what's happening? You know, I'm in the TikTok rabbit hole. <laughs> okay. Chasing after her and taking a look myself. So I, so I 
I, I'm super sort of compulsive and obsessive and scouring social media and yeah. following people and trying to understand and see what's going on. And um, I have these seven dogs and three cats. And quite honestly, right now, I'm super happy just hanging out at home. Yeah. And watching TV and hanging out with the brood. So it's it's the opposite of running around all over the world, but for me right now, that's that's your recharge. That's my that's my recharge. Yeah. I think I think from I'm your first beauty interview. I think so. Okay, so why beauty versus fashion insiders? Well, it feels like it's all storytelling, though. Yes, and I think that what I'm going to reveal okay. is that this is a super interesting territory that maybe you hadn't thought of before. Yeah. Because beauty entrepreneurs, fragrance makeup and skincare, and retail concepts, and sort of the shape and shift of the culture, whether it's Kardashian beauty or... Yeah. Backstage beauty or Billie Eilish, new wave, goth, or whatever the case may be. Makeup and fragrance are the ways that people express themselves when they have no money at all. And a oh. woman, a woman can have absolutely nothing, but she still can have the audacious choice to put on a black lipstick or to put out a smoked out or a black eye, or to change her brow, yeah, or to change her hair. And if you're following fashion and the culture and how it all works together, the way that people project themselves in hair and makeup and the way that they take care of themselves actually says a lot more about them than maybe the clothing they wear. And they're very personal choices. Right. So when you look in your friend's medicine cabinets or handbags or beauty or grooming routines, usually when you ask someone why, how, and where did it get there, you'll probably find a bigger reveal in terms of what somebody's life is about than you ever could have possibly imagined. Yeah, it's it's definitely a bit of an equalizer. I've I've found. I mean, my my wife. As a side note, I mean, you know, we don't make a ton of money or anything, but f- the number one thing that she will spend a hundred percent of whatever she can on is makeup. Like, I mean, the number one thing. And she's not the stereotypical, if that's even a thing anymore, type of woman. I mean, well, it takes a lot of makeup not to wear makeup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I've thought I spent more on makeup than her. You know, I mean, I. So I so I so yeah. I think that beauty is sort of the intersection of the culture, fashion, entertainment, yeah, retail, shopping. So I I think you'll find it um, interesting, and the the backstories of the legacies and the heritage of a lot of these companies are as storied as the fashion institutions and designers that you may have talked to over the years. Right. And the thing about the beauty business is this is a business where personality muscle counts. 
and where somebody with a good idea or the ability to tell the story better than somebody else can come out of nowhere and become an overnight sensation. So it's um, incredibly entrepreneurial, incredibly competitive, um, increasingly more so, but super interesting. So yeah, so that's why I am. Um, well, you're, you're one of the things that I'll, I'll mention to you as we wrap is I was chatting with Edward Sexton. He was my, did he tell you that my first suit, my he, first suit. He told me that there is no one else that he's ever met. And this guy's met a lot of people that has a better understanding of what's currently happening than you. What's very it's, it's on a recording that we did. Well, well, <laughs> my, my Edward Sexton story was that I had read in Interview Magazine that David Bowie had a Tommy Nutter suit yeah. and that Bianca and Mick got married in a Tommy Nutter suit. So I made my parents take <laughs> me to London at 16 years old to get a Tommy Nutter suit. And I met Edward Sexton. So it's, it's very true. So from a super young age, you know, even to this day, you know, the, hard, the, the, the most important thing to figure out as you get older yeah. is to make sure that you find a way to age in a way that, that feels right where you are, yeah. but doesn't have to be trapped or lost or in a, you know, not done in the right way. And I, to, to this very day, you know, I'll still pull out a streetwear thing or a t-shirt or a pair of kicks or something like that. Or when someone will show me something, I'll see something that I think is amazing. I'll go, I think this is amazing for my younger self. Yeah. Um, not for me, but I totally appreciate it for my younger self. And I would suggest it for my younger self <laughs> or right. my younger than younger self. So I, um, that's a compliment. It's nice that he said that. Yeah. It w- I was like, oh my God, wow, flex. Well, John, a huge pleasure and it was an honor to chat with you. I want to Likewise. thank you again. All right. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Brendan Finn and we're produced by Blamo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. If you want even more Blamo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blamo to join the Blam fam. You'll get access to additional interviews, a community slack, special events, and more. And best of all, you're supporting the show. Try it. It feels good. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.